0: So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Show. For those that are returners and then listen to it on a regular basis. And again, those that are, and those that are new, one of the things that we always focus on with this show is how to create wealth from successful businesses. And whether you, as an investor in those businesses because mo, a lot of businesses, most businesses often require outside capital. And that's what we are about. Compassionate capitalism is uh, investing in entrepreneurs. But those business owners themselves, you know the whole reason why you get into a business is not only to make money while you're doing it, but to make money while you exit it. And it is, it is a imperative to make a, a sustainable, scalable, and sellable business to do that. And today I have a very special guest. I'm so excited about... Uh, having Michelle Siler Tucker on my show, I'm going to tell you why I'm so excited about about having her on my show. Because she is literally, truly, I think, the best at explaining, and teaching, and educating, and helping business owners do exactly that: scalable, sellable businesses that they'll make more money selling their business as a result of doing, of learning, and using what she says. To, to do that than really I think anything else out there. So say hello, Michelle, and I'll tell everybody more about you in just a second. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Karen. Absolutely. So Michelle Silo Tucker is the founder and CEO of Silo Tucker Incorporated. She holds the title of M&AMI, which stands for Mergers and Acquisitions Master Intermediary, as well as a Certified Merger and Acquisitions Professional. She's a certified senior business analyst. Michelle also owns many other businesses in several different industries and has, ha, has her own long successful track record of buying turn, and turning around and selling businesses for a profit. As a 20-year veteran in the m and industry, she's regarded as the leading authority on buying, selling, fixing, and growing businesses. Her and her firm have sold over 1,000, I'll repeat that, 1,000 businesses in almost every vertical and have a remarkable track record for success, as I already said. In addition to being featured in Inc., Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and USA Magazine, Michelle is an international keynote speaker and makes regular radio and TV experiences on Fox Business News and CNBC. She has spoken alongside many prominent speakers, Eric Trump, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Kathy Ireland, Donna, Karen, Stedman, Graham, and the list goes on and on, including including Randy Zuckerberg and Steve Rosniak. She is the best-selling author of the book Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth and has a new book coming out called Exit Rich, and that's what we're going to focus our time talking about today. And those who uh, in the, and, uh, the, the who's who of the business industry have endorsed this book, Exit Rich, it's Stu, Stephen Forbes, Brian Tracy, Les Brown, Jack Canfield, Kevin Harrington, just to name a few. It's co-written with Sh- Sharon Lecter, who many of you will know from the Rich Dad, Poor Dad series with Robert Kiyosaki, and it is sure to be a New York bestseller. Go to ExitRich.com to get your copy and all the perks that come with that before June 22nd. And we'll learn a lot more about that during the program. So again, officially welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I want to ask you first, because being you know a, a fellow woman business owner and advisor for entrepreneurs uh, you know, our field is is most often dominated by men, mm-hmm. and you, as a forever young, attractive woman, women in the field dominated by men in this M&A space, please share with our audience how you came to be involved in the mergers and acquisition side of the business. Yep. So, you know, I didn't really wake up one day
1: and say, oh, I'm going to sell companies. <laughs> <laughs> but I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur and I've owned many different businesses and many different verticals. And um, I did end up going into franchise sales, franchise consulting, franchise development, and was had an equity partnership in several different franchise or businesses. And I found myself kept saying, no, 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 because buyers would come to me all the time and say, I don't want to buy a franchise. I want to buy an existing business. And I kept saying, well, that's not what we do. That's not what we do. (laughs) We do franchise sales, franchise development, franchise consulting. And then one day I'm like, you know, this is ridiculous. I should be saying yes, yes, yes. And really that's how I opened up my mergers and acquisitions firm by saying, look, there's so many buyers for existing businesses that don't want to buy franchises. I've got a captive audience. I need to go ahead and open up a
0: firm. And that's what I did. It was really that simple. (laughs) a thousands a business, a thousand businesses. That's just phenomenal. It's kind of that's like- That's over 20 a-
1: years ago. Yeah, that was over 20 years ago. So I got in, I've been in this business a little over 20 years. So that's a yeah. over what, 53 businesses a year, I believe.
0: Yeah.
1: And some years we've sold more, some years we've sold less, you know, one year, last year, we sold less, <laughs> Um yeah. you know,
0: because of the pandemic. But
1: yeah, so I think that's what about averages out to, I have personally sold 500 and my company has sold- Yeah.
0: Yeah. So but that's what I'm saying. It's like you have a clone. I mean, it's just amazing to me. I wish (laughs) I had a clone. I'd be doing so much more. I have
1: all this
0: big things I want to do. I'm like, I need to clone myself. Yeah, And it's not like you're just, um, you know, peddling them in and out of the door. You're helping these business owners when you get involved in turning them around and creating the value proposition for them to exit rich to, to sell their business at the maximum amount that they, that they can sell it for which they often when we were talking before they just they don't even have an idea that they have the ability to do that now of course it takes lots of work to get there and that's what we're going to talk about today yeah. but it's just that it's just really I, I just you know hats off to you that you are um, have d- accomplished what you've accomplished and that's why I said you forever young in this male dominated Feel, cause you know, you like it's uh, twenty years looks well on you. So I just <laughs> I <know that laughs> thank you, so, thank you. You know, so all right, so let's, cause you know, this is the thing. You, you know, one of the things we hope to get out, of, and I'm going to tell the audience, you know, in the thirty minutes or so that we're going to be talking today, there's no way you can learn everything that you need to know to take your business. If you didn't start right. With an exit strategy before you 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 know got ready to go do that and what your roadmap, and you're having to you know navigate and figure this stuff out. It doesn't happen overnight, and you're not going to learn what you need to learn in 30 minutes. She's got 21 golden nuggets, absolute gold nuggets in her book Exit Rich that I uh, we're going to talk about some of those today. But I really want to again encourage you to go to ExitRich.com and get that. So you ExitRichBook.com exitrichbook.com. Thank you. Yes. For proven techniques to maximize the value and preparation and process of the sale of your business. So let's get into some of those. Um, So let's see you, When discuss the key elements that to maximize the value in in your sale, one of your first gold nuggets is something we talk about. And I mentioned it before when I mentor entrepreneurs about what investors are looking for, they kind of want to know, do you have an exit strategy or a plan or at least a a target of what it's going to be before you begin? So how, what's a, a good way, what do you tell your clients you know, to start, let's start with starting right, and then we'll figure out how to, we'll get into how you fix it when you didn't actually get started in such a way. So it's what Steve Forbes says is, is true. Eight, eight out of 10 businesses
1: don't sell. And Steve Forbes actually endorsed Exit Rich. Right. And eight out of 10 businesses don't sell. That's 80%. Those are pretty startling statistics. The number one reason that businesses don't sell, there's many reasons, but the, the biggest reason is that business owners never think about selling their business. They never plan their exit and they never build a sellable asset. They never build a business that a buyer actually wants to buy. They don't think about selling until an internal or external catastrophic event has occurred. Internal meaning health issues, partner disputes, divorce, death, external right. this pandemic we're in. And or burnout. They're like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. That's the worst time to sell your business. You never want to sell your business during a catastrophic event because your business is going to be trending downward. The best time to sell your business is when your business is doing well. And it's at the height, you know, you're in your prime. So what I work with my clients on is how to plan. It's like Stephen Covey, you know, start with the end in mind. And that's what you need to be doing with your business. Start with the end in mind. Plan your GPS, I call this the ST GPS exit model. You need to start this from day one a buying or starting a company. So the first step in the GPS exit model is kind of like when you drive somewhere, Karen, what do you do? You pull out your phone, you go to Google Maps and what do you plug in? Your destination. Your destination. That's the biggest issue with business owners. They have no destination. When you don't have a destination, you're gonna drive around in circles. You're gonna drive up up and down the financial hills ending up nowhere. And business owners don't fail, they don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. So I tell all my business owners, figure out your destination. What is your end game? What is your desired sales price? Pick a number. And so many business owners get hung up on a number. Don't get hung up on a number, something you can change along the way. Yeah. Let's say you wanna sell your business for $20 million, just pick a number. Now, what does the GPS exit model need to know? It needs to know where you're starting from. And Right. What right. is your current location? What is your current evaluation? What is your business worth today? And most business owners have never, ever had a business evaluation. I just met with an owner the other day, been in business for 50 years, never had his business evaluated. That's financial suicide. Yeah. You know, we go to the doctor once a year to get an annual checkup to make sure our heart's still ticking and we're still kicking. We drive our car to the mechanic to get an annual tune-up to make sure our car is in good shape, but we don't take our most valuable asset and get an annual valuation checkup. That's financial suicide because there are events that increase valuation and there are events that decrease valuation. So it's imperative to know what your business is worth every year. So let's say you want to sell for 20 million. Let's say you're currently worth 5 million. And let's say, what's the next thing you need to know in a GPSX model? Timeframe. Right. Let's say you want to do this in 10 years. Now you have a sort of a plan. The next thing you need to know is who are my buyers going to be? Not buyer, but buyers. There's five different types of buyers. And a lot of clients come to me and say, Michelle, I have the buyer. I just need you to represent me. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I will assure you (laughs) in all likelihood that. Buyer is probably not going to close on the sale of your business, right? So you never want to put all your eggs in one buyer's basket. You always want to have backup buyers. Plus, how can you maximize value if you can't create competition because you have one buyer,
0: right?
1: You want to create competition and get a bidding war started. That's where you get the highest possible price. You're so right. there's five different types of buyers. 90% of buyers are 1st time buyers. They're not going to buy a $20 million company. They typically buy businesses under a million dollars. And then you have turnaround specialists as a second type of buyer and they buy distressed assets. They're not buying a $20 million company. Then you have private equity groups, PEGs. And we work with about 3,000 private equity groups. Private equity groups buy based upon platforms and add-ons. On platform, let's say they want to get in a food manufacturing space. They won't even consider a company unless it's at least $3 million to $5 million in EBITDA. EBITDA earnings right. for interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Now, let's say they're already in food manufacturing and they're looking at a spice company. They'll consider that spice company under a million dollars in EBITDA. That's an add-on. So add-ons can be much smaller. But platforms have to have at least three and up million in revenue. Right. And then, there's so the fourth type of buyers are strategic slash competitors. Strategics typically will pay the highest multiple on a sell of the business because they're buying synergies that will help catapult their current business to the next level. Plus, they're taking advantage of economies of scale. And a lot of times, strategists and competitors can look at the infrastructure of the business that they're buying and cut costs immediately and increase EBITDA they want to closing on the seller of the business. The last type of buyer is sophisticated entrepreneurs. They buy, they, they're industry agnostic. They chase EBITDA. They chase cash flow. So out of those five types of buyers, three would be right to buy the $20 million company. Now you need to reverse engineer your numbers and say, okay, and reverse engineer your plan and say, okay, if I want to sell for 20, I'm worth 5 million today. Where does my gross revenues need to be? Cost of goods. Most importantly, where does my EBITDA need to be to sell for $20 million? Right. Well, your EBITDA needs to be, I would say, between 4 million and 5 million depending upon the synergies that you have built. Then you need to look at what do these buyers look for? What synergies are they willing to pay top dollar for? How do I build this business to meet their specific criteria from the beginning? Kind of like when a business starts, they say, okay, I have a widget. I'm going to take this widget. I'm going to market this widget. Here's my ideal target market for this widget.
0: Right. Same
1: thing when you're trying to sell your business. And then you build to suit that buyer specific criteria. The last step in a GPS exit model is the why. Why do you want to sell your business for $20 million? You have to have a powerful reason. You know, I once had a client that was selling a media company and he wanted to sell between 10 to 15. And I said, why do you want to sell between 10 and 15? He said, because my wife was diagnosed with a debilitating skin disease. I want to help find a cure. That's a pretty motivational, powerful why. If it was easy to sell a business for 20 million dollars everybody would be doing it. So right. you need to have a powerful why that will keep you motivated, keep you hungry, keep you in the game, keep you weathering all the financial storms that come our way.
0: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because you're going to be trucking
1: along and all of a sudden bam, here comes a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> right. So in order the for black you swan. Of course, you have to make sure you have that powerful why in place. Yes,
0: yes, and that's actually something that you know, uh, as I work with companies that got stuck because they raise a little bit of an angel, they got stuck in that three to five million because Mm -hmm. they didn't get the next round of capital to go and and grow it and hit their milestones to get to a potential exit at 20 million. They kind of get stuck, but they also lose their why because they're in the grind. So sometimes people, you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs will start with a passion and a purpose and things like that. And then, the life and the grind of the business and some of the the struggles will just get them they can't they get you know you know that phrase they're so busy working in their business they can't work on their business and their Mm -hmm. business becomes a lifestyle business even though they never actually planned on it being a lifestyle business, but they can't they can't ever, it's extremely difficult to sell, as you know, a lifestyle business versus a scalable business. So let's talk about that. When you when somebody comes to you and they find themselves they didn't put that destination in there and they see even if they're doing three million, four, five million in business, how do they pivot emotionally and structurally and operationally I and mean, this is not something that you probably cover in like five minutes, right? But, you know, give us a little appetizer of of what of, of the big vision of how they pivot from lifestyle to a scalable business.
1: Well, they, they build their business on an infrastructure. So, you know, they got to stop that lifestyle business and really look at building. They, first of all, it's mindset. Let's start from the mind. Right. <laughs> first of all, they got to change their mindset. So many business owners... Get stuck, you know, because of their mindset. Their mind says, "This is it's my this is my baby. Right, business is my baby. You know, I'm never gonna sell my baby, or nobody else can do it as good as I can, or nobody else is gonna take care of the customers like I do." And they got to get out of the mindset that their business is their baby because it's not your baby. You have babies at home. Go home, hug those babies, kiss <laughs> those babies, spend time with those babies. Treat your business as a valuable asset as it is. I don't see anybody that takes their financial portfolio and say, "Oh my gosh, my stocks are my baby."
0: <laughs> they don't do that. They buy,
1: sell. If the stocks are not doing good, they get rid of. They get other stocks in. Right. right. They treat it as a valuable asset. They treat it as a retirement fund, and as their nest egg. But yet, they treat their baby as. Their business as their baby right so they got to change this mindset first your baby your business is your most valuable asset it is not your baby's, all right just like your financial portfolio is an asset right right okay so you're not treating that as your baby so you need to first change your mindset you need a mindset shift and you need to look at your most valuable asset and say okay what are we missing here? How do we build a solid infrastructure to where my business can be sustainable, that I can scale? And when I'm ready, I will actually have a sellable asset. Because most businesses, the reason they don't sell is because the Business owner never built a business. They built a glorified job in which you go to work at every day rather than a business that works for them. And they never built a business that somebody actually wants to buy. So let's start with the infrastructure. Okay. So the first P, I take my clients through what yeah. I call the six P's. The first right. P is people. People is one of the most important aspects of your business. Entrepreneurs get stuck working in the day-to-day because entrepreneurs are control freaks. Mm -hmm. They think if they want it done right, they have to do it themselves. Yeah, And I'm here to tell you, you will never grow unless you let go of the control. Right. You have to focus on your strengths and hire your weaknesses. Stop thinking that you're going to do everything because it's impossible to do everything. And the the number two reason that businesses are not sellable is because number one, business owners don't plan for their exit. Number two, The business is a thousand percent dependent upon the owner, right? You know, I just had a dentist call me that wants to sell. Been in business fifty years. One dentist, three dental hygienists. The three dental hygienists is are his daughters. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, the only way we can sell is if y'all stay on for two to three years. He goes, we're not staying. I said, then you're not selling, because when you leave, the patients leave. So we have to create a business that will run without us. So you got to find, get the right people in the right seats. A lot of business owners have the right people in the wrong seats. And then you got to ask the who question. Who opens the door? Who handles customer service, legal, marketing, accounting, manufacturing, logistics, environmental? The list goes on and on and on. The clue, Karen, is you should never be next to the who. Right. Because you need the business to run without you. Right. And business owners need the, to be the visionary, and they need to work on the business, not in the business.
0: Well, it goes also to that whole thing of, you know, even, well, I mentioned Robert Kiyosaki before that I learned, you know, he changed my paradigm. If you don't do the business like you're talking about, then you're self-employed. You're not a business owner. Yeah,
1: self-employed, and so many business owners are really like I said, they have a glorified job and which you're going to work at every day versus a business that actually works for them. Yeah. So you got to fix the people thing. The, the people is the most challenging of any business. It is the most challenging, but you got to get the people problem first. <laughs> okay. The next P is product. So you got to look at your product, look at your industry, look at your service and ask yourself, is my industry, my product service on the way up or on the way out? Is it thriving or dying? Do I have an Amazon and I'm at the top of my game or do I have a blockbuster and I'm about to go out of
0: business? (laughs) Right. And
1: there's a lot of industries right now, especially hospitality that's taking a nosedive, you know, because of this pandemic, there are a lot of industries that were dying like manufacturing before this pandemic that are are now thriving. So you really got to look at that. Um, And then you got to ask yourself, you know, I tell all my clients, if you're in an industry that's dying, that doesn't mean you just pack up, go home, and you know, crawl up in a fetal position and die. <laughs> you got to like do something about it.
0: Yeah, pivot. So That's you not pivot. one of your Ps, but yeah, <laughs> pivot. Well,
1: it's a P. I use all the time, but you yeah. pivot. And I actually wrote this book before COVID. <laughs> yeah. But um, you pivot. But how do you pivot? You know, how do you pivot? This is how you pivot your product Ask transformational questions. Amazon did this back in the nineties. Ask yourself three questions and every business owner should pause this right now and ask themselves these questions. Number one is what business am I in? Amazon asked that question. What business am I in? And they said, we're in a book selling business. We fulfill book orders. Number two question, what do I do? What do we do better than anybody else? What is our core competency or USP, unique selling proposition. Amazon said fulfillment. We're better at fulfillment than anyone else. Then the next obvious question is, what business should we be in? Should we be in? Meaning what business should we pivot to? Amazon said we should be in a fulfillment business. We should be fulfilling products for everybody, not just booksellers. Those three transformational questions transformed Amazon from a small bookseller to a multi-billion dollar robot conglomerate Yeah, that they are today. Those three questions. So ask yourself those three questions. What business are you in? What do you do better than anybody else? What should you be in? Now, that doesn't mean that, let's say you're in the restaurant industry, you say, okay, I'm not going to be in a restaurant anymore. I'm going to open up an auto parts store. No, that's not what that means. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> Amazon didn't really change things that much. All they did was decide to fulfill for everybody. <laughs> fulfill all kinds of products, right? Right, right. So, these these questions sound simple, but I always say when you're in your fog, it's foggy. So, a lot of times you need an outsider's perspective to help you navigate these three transformational questions. And then the next P is processes, and you will never scale without processes. Right. Now, most business owners kind of treat processes like exit strategy. They never think about it until something bad happens in their company and they're like, oh, we need a process for that. You probably needed a <laughs> process before that to yeah. avoid that from happening. Now, this is where most business owners get it wrong. Most business owners don't design the processes around the customer experience. They design it around their own agenda.
0: Yes, customer discovery. Oh, we want to be efficient,
1: so we're not ever going to answer our phones. We're (laughs) just going to give you twelve different prompts (laughs) to push. You know, so we're never going to answer our phones. That's that process is not designed to create happy customer experiences. It's designed (laughs) to infuriate customers, right? So you really got to design your your process around your customer experience. So again, this is where you should pause this and ask yourself, what do you want your customers to experience? McDonald's did this back in the fifties. Did you ever watch the movie, The Founder?
0: Yes. The
1: McDonald brothers. Okay. So if you remember correctly, back in the fifties, McDonald's said, we want to build a fast food restaurant because nobody's doing fast food. We want a fast food system. We want to design the processes around the customer experience. They said, we want our customers to experience great tasting food. That's hot, fast, 30 seconds or less. Do you remember when I took all the employees out to the tennis courts? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They took chalk and they drew the processes out and everybody kept bumping in each other and they erased it and they drew it again. And they did this for like 10 hours. And one of the McDonald's brothers was on the ladder and he had a little conductor stick and he was like, you know, all the employees to what they should be doing. It was like a symphony of systems. It was pretty unique. And McDonald's, even though they built those processes back in the fifties and they've been tweaked along the way, it is the reason that you can eat at a McDonald's anywhere on the road and really get the same experience.
0: Right, right.
1: So you got to not think about the owner's agenda. You got to think about what your customer wants to experience, because if you don't create wow experiences for your clients, your competitors will be happy to do it for you and you will lose market share.
0: And it's amazing how many big companies we can look at that lost sight of that, what you were talking about with the telephone, right? right? You think about big companies like what's up with Sears? Why couldn't Sears have pivoted and become more recognizing what was happening with Amazon and stuff like that, that they never could quite figure it out because they lost their customer connection. Right, and so right. Wh- whatever size it is, you same know, thing with Blockbuster. Before- yeah, same
1: thing with Blockbuster. You know, they were out of touch with what their customers wanted, and Netflix said people don't want to leave their house at nighttime to go get a movie, right When they can be sitting in their home and just ordered on on online like Netflix, right? Yeah. So Blockbuster saw what Netflix was doing, and Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix, and they sat back and did nothing. And now they're out of business. You know, so that happens to company after company after company. It is the reason why the business landscape has changed dramatically. Most business owners don't know this, but when I wrote my very first book in 2013 called sell your business for more than it's worth. And I did the research and learned that 95% of all startups go out of business. We all know that that's common knowledge. But here's what you don't know. When I wrote Exit Rich in 2019, 2020, I did the exact same research. And this was before the pandemic. I learned that only 30% of startups will go out of business. The business landscape has flip-flopped.
0: Really? Startups,
1: only 30%. However, out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses that have been in business 10 years or longer, 70% are at risk of going out of business. Seven zero. 70%. So it's flip-flopped. It used to be if you're in business past five years, you're golden. you're going to be in business forever. Not the case. And you hear about the big public companies all the time, like Toys R Us is in business 75 years, goes out of business. Toys R Us is a perfect example of not doing anything different.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: goes out of business. Steinmark, Pier One, Godiva closes down 1,500 locations. GNC is closing down 900 locations. But what you don't hear about are all the. In every single city, these businesses are going out of business and. Dropping, they're exiting, They're not exiting rich They're exiting poor. They're having to close their business, sell for pennies on the dollar, or mm-hmm. even worse, follow bankruptcy. And the number one reason that these businesses are going out of business when startups are not is because business owners stop doing what I call AIM. A-I-M. AIM is always innovate and market.
0: They, oh, stop, yeah. marketing
1: and they stop marketing. They're married to their original ideas. Blockbusters married to their original concept. Toys are Us married to their original concept. You're either growing or dying, there is no in-between. That's why those transformational questions about what kind of business are we in? What do we do really well? What should we pivot to are so crucial right now, especially more than ever before. And the startups are not like, they're not starting up another yogurt shop or another ice cream shop because God knows we don't need any more yogurt shops. <laughs> shops. They're, they're coming up with real, solutions to real problems and that's why they're succeeding. And business is all about coming up with solutions to solve problems and be innovative. You know, if you're not gonna if you're not innovating, you're dying. So back to processes. So your processes must be designed with the customer experience in mind. They must be productive, efficient, and well documented. You need your policy and procedure manuals. In fact, you should have a policy and procedure manual that's open in your company. And every time something different happens, you add that new policy right then and there. It is a working, light, living, breathing document. And same thing with your SOP checklist. You also need to make sure you have employee handbooks, non-competes, employee contracts. You'd be surprised how many of these documents are missing. And when buyers go into due diligence, it's the first thing they ask for. Let me see your policy and procedure manuals. Let me see your employee contracts and you know, yeah. and we do. We work with our clients up front to get those documents in place because we know they probably don't have them. Right. And we right. know they're gonna. That buyers are gonna ask for them, so processes are huge.
0: Yeah. So you know, when it comes to because your golden nugget eight another P proprietary, so when you're dealing with a business, I mean, most startups are some kind of innovation that's coming out, particularly if they're investor backed. of a thing and they'll have something that's within their operations i had a conversation with a guy yesterday that i told him he should be able to get a process patent you know for what he was doing he was like i didn't even know i could do that so when somebody's been around for a bit and maybe they're like the dentist or a traditional type of uh, what i call a market participant business they're not a market maker they're not creating a new market right what is your things that they could do proprietary that they haven't really thought about that increases the value of the company?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about proprietary because proprietary is the number one value driver. Right. Proprietary will get you a higher multiple than anything else. And let me give you just a crash course on valuation. So businesses are under a million dollars in EBITDA. Typically, we'll trade for a multiple of one to three times EBITDA, maybe three and a half to four you're not going to get much more than four if you're under a million in EBITDA. Businesses that have a million and over in EBITDA will typically trade four or five and up. Some of these proprietary assets that we're about to get into can bring you to a six, a seven, an eight, a nine, or a 10. So you really got to pay attention to proprietary. There are six pillars to proprietary. Oh, okay. So first and foremost is branding. The more well-branded your company is, the more i can sell it for as long as your brand is relevant in the minds of the consumer is any gonna is anyone gonna pay any money for blockbuster
0: yeah no
1: so who's the most valuable brand in the world do you know uh is it apple mm-hmm it's apple i guess i win you win <laughs> Yay. so apple's the most valuable brand they're worth 359 billion dollars that's with Audi, but uh, that's with, not in, taking into consideration. Cash flow, inventory, real estate, accounts receivables, or anything else. That's just the brand alone is worth $359 billion. So build okay. your brand. And trademarks are also very valuable. Trademarks on your company name, your slogan, your logo. I trademarked Exit Rich. You know, your podcast should be trademarked. Yeah. Anything that's unique to you, even products, like we're selling a business that has 12 different exclusive products. Each product has a federal trademark. Each product is exclusive to a retail chain. Like one is for Walmart, one is for Target. They don't really compete against each other. They have their own exclusivity. A buyer will pay more money for that because each product has an exclusive to Walmart. So they want to get into Walmart. Plus they'll pay more money for that because they have the federal trademarks. The mistake that business owners make though, is they go to GoDaddy, they put in their domain, they're like, yes, I got it. Right. And then they go to the <laughs> state that they're gonna operate in and they go get a local trademark, a state trademark, but they never check the federal database. They check GoDaddy before they check the federal database. Not good because you can be operating your business for years and all of a sudden receive assistance assist letter. And I see this happen to my clients all the time and then hire an attorney and throw lots of money at it and you're probably going to end up losing. And then you have to stop using that company name and start the branding process all over again. And we all know one of the most expensive things to do is branding. Right. So make sure you protect all of your intellectual property by getting a federal trademark. Check the federal database before you go to GoDaddy. <laughs> all right, and then patents are huge. If you ever watched Shark Tank, Every single investor asks the same question. Do you have a patent pending on that? Do you have right. a utility patent? Their offer is typically contingent upon you having a patent. We went and sold a business for $18 million. It wasn't making that much money, but they had 18 patents. So these were synergies that we're talking about. Contracts are also extremely valuable. Manufacturing contracts, vendor distribution, any type of exclusivity contracts. Franchise or that has franchisees. Client contracts are extremely valuable, especially if they have a subscription model with reoccurring revenue. So here's a caveat to contracts. I've been doing this over 20 years, thousands of, you know, over a thousand transactions, but meeting with thousands thousands of business people. I've never seen a business owner actually do this correctly. (laughs) In order for your contracts to be transferable, you need the transferability clause and nobody ever has it. There's a
0: golden nugget. That's a platinum nugget. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you did that two So transferability clause, there was an M&A firm that sold to a private equity group and they weren't really M&A. It's more like a business brokers firm. But anyway, um, the private equity group paid millions, had a whole legal team and then, you know, had a celebratory party. And then they realized that their contracts were not transferable. So they threw this huge party for all the franchisees to entice them to sign the consent to transfer. You're supposed to sign a consent to transfer before the sale.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So the the franchisees didn't like the private equity group. They they thought they had zero experience and they didn't want to be under their umbrella. So no one franchisee transferred, signed the consent. Nobody else did within 90, 120 days. The company was out of business and filed bankruptcy.
0: Well, they'd they sued say-
1: their entire legal team. What?
0: Yeah, well, I could, could see that, but I'm just thinking in that kind of like for the franchise owners, the franchisees sort of knows despite your face kind of a thing, because no, because the franchisees
1: they, all ganged together and started their own franchise, uh, <laughs>
0: franchise. And then they changed the things that they had always wanted to change. Yeah, because here's <laughs> the bottom
1: line, they didn't have to. They yeah. didn't have to transfer over and the private equity group messed up because The due diligence team didn't read the contracts. Okay, yeah, that's like the first thing you want to do in due diligence. So anyway, they ended up suing the whole legal team. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So
0: I want to make sure we have enough time, and there's I'm really curious to hear this because I, uh, you know, one of your six P's is profits, and people could probably uh, guess what that is. What is patrons?
1: Well, let me let me finish IP really quickly. Okay, okay, sure. I promise you, we'll have enough time.
0: Okay. So let me just
1: finish IP. So databases are huge. You got to grow your database because if your clients are nurtured and they can be retargeted and repurposed, we can sell that for a lot of money. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp and WhatsApp was emerging, but they had a billion users. So they had a synergy that, that Facebook knew they could ROI and monetize. Celebrity endorsements are huge. We have some companies right now that have celebrity endorsements that we're selling. One has Oprah. And those are huge because strategics will pay a lot of money for celebrity endorsements because they only can endorse one vertical at a time. You don't see Jennifer Aniston's face on other skincare products other than Avino. You don't see Cindy Crawford representing any other furniture store other than Rooms To Go, right? So celebrity endorsements, radio personalities are huge. E-commerce businesses that have the top five positions on Wayfair. Um, Amazon, Etsy, eBay, strategics will pay you a high multiple for that. So these are your proprietary synergies, your proprietary assets. This P right here, proprietary can take you from a five to 10.
0: And do you have to have those um, consent to transfer with celebrity endorsements and those kind of things too? I can't believe a lawyer didn't didn't like they didn't pick up on that happens
1: that's, all the time <laughs> and even
0: setting up a franchise it seems like whoever did their I mean that's that mm, <coughs> wow. happens all the time wow so
1: the next P is patrons patrons is your customer base most businesses follow the 80 20 rule or 80 percent of your revenue comes from 20 percent of your customers but then if you lose a few customers you're in big trouble you know right. we're representing a media firm that catered to casinos We're selling them between 10 to 15 million. They have five casinos. They lost two while we were trying to sell them. Their revenues dropped in half. They're even dropped in half. They were no longer sellable. We had to merge them with another media company.
0: Oh, wow. So You want to
1: make sure you have customer diversification, not customer concentration. And then last P is profits. Now, yes, you know what profits are, but here's what many don't know about profits. Everybody thinks lack of profits is the problem. Lack of profits is never the problem. Lack of profits is the symptom of not having the right people in place. It's a symptom ah.
0: right
1: process in place. Lack of profits is never the problem. It's always a symptom of not operating on all five P's. If you operate on all five P's, you're going to be profitable.
0: Okay. All right. Very good. So, all right. You talked about the buyers. You, um, You talked about the the, the, how to maximize your profit and all that stuff. So how do you how do you identify or how do you get in the game to to get in front of those folks? I, I mean, clearly, you're an expert in doing that, and that's a service that you provide. But is there, you know, how do, how do people rub elbows with finding their buyer? Do they just send an email or, you know, it's, it's yeah, I would be- never,
1: ever recommend a seller to try to do this on their own. It's like saying I need heart surgery. Cut open your heart, cut open your chest, rip your heart out and start operating on your own heart. Why would you even risk trying to sell your own company or trying to get those buyers? Confidentiality is always the number one concern for all business owners. They don't want their employees to know they're selling. They don't want their customers to know. And for good reason, you know, um, when employees find out, a lot of employees leave, customers get nervous. So plus they're not experts. They're not experts in marketing and business. They're not experts in creating a bidding war. It took me over 20 years to to get these buyers. It took me over 20 years to build a list of over 28,000 buyers in my database. You know, so that's not anything that you want to try on your own. If you're thinking about selling, you need to get an advisor. and An yes. acquisitions
0: advisor. And so what is, um, is there a way to package your business and to uh, make it, you know, appeal, like at least getting through the door? I mean, obviously closing and the value comes from the six Ps that you did. But there is there a certain way that, that you know, gets you sort of noticed or gets you, appointments because you've packaged the business in such a a way so
1: we we put together a prospectus um, they call it sim in the industry confidential confidential information memorandum we put together a package we've got a package right now that's about 110 pages on one of our businesses and it includes all the pertinent information on a business plus we continue to improve it as we go Um, and, and we put together the package on the business and then we pull together strategic list that's either in our database, if they're not in our database and we go pull strategic lists, are going to be a good fit for that buyer. We do all that. Again, if, a, if an owner's trying to do this on their own, it's financial suicide. It's yeah. a tremendous amount of work. You don't know how to go get the buyers. Plus you got to be very careful in talking to your competitors. You know, if we go after someone's competitor, We're extremely careful not to divulge any proprietary information. Right. So it's very difficult
0: for a business owner to try to do that on their own. So one of the things I know that is important when people are raising startup capital and even when they're out there raising money from the crowd on the different platforms for raising money um, through general solicitation, it's important to establish this emotional connection. Is that important when you're trying to sell your business to also have an emotional connection or is it just, a- you know, it's it kind of that-
1: like, you know, it's kind it depends on who the buyer is. So Remember the five types of buyers. If it's a first-time buyer, yes, you absolutely need to establish that emotional connection because first-time buyers have never owned a business before. They're very nervous. They are very slow to pull the trigger. They need a lot of reassurances to make them comfortable with their, their decision of business ownership. You have to get them emotionally connected to your business. If it's a private equity group, They don't buy based on emotions. It's all about the logic. It's all about the facts. It's all about the numbers. Same thing with strategists and competitors. Now, sometimes strategists and competitors, you know, we can get them emotionally involved, you know, especially if it means really, you know, counterpointing their current business to the next level. You know, we had a buyer, uh, a strategic buyer outbid. All of our other buyers on a particular business that appraised for 9.8 million, he ended up paying 15 million, wow. for 70% of the business, which was, was 126% more than the appraised price. And the reason for that is because he was so emotionally connected to buying the BP contract because this company has 70% of the revenue tied up in BP, uh, customer concentration. It scared everybody else but it didn't scare him because they had similar products and services, and they've been trying to get in BP for decades. Oh. So that was kind of emotional for them. So we really look at what's important to the buyer. What is the buyer trying to accomplish? You know, what are their hot buttons? What are their sweet spots? And then that's what we try to pull out of them. Um, and then your sophisticated entrepreneurs—they don't really get emotionally involved. They're more like, "Show me the numbers.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know." So one of the things that you know when it comes to earlier stage folks and you know you start to it, and and this goes to your your point at the beginning about creating a bidding war, which is the way you just you just described you had this bidding war going on is there is there ever a a a threshold where it becomes um sort of over-marketed and like people go, well, what's wrong with this? I've seen this deal three times. It's oversold in the marketplace. Everybody's looking at it's crossed everybody's desk, you know, or if you have the, what you've done in the six P's, it doesn't matter how many people you contact about buying your business because you, that's how you set the stage up for a bidding war. Is there a balance there? I'm, I'm trying to
1: understand the question. <laughs> is there a balance? So to
0: create a bidding war, when you're trying to create a bidding war, is there a risk of, um, of over shopping the deal?
1: Um, Not for us, because we're very careful of how we do it. And there's different types of bidding wars or structured auctions, where you go after the strategics that you feel are the the biggest fit. And it's a structure. It's structured that you have this much time. This is what it needs to look like. And it's structured. The other type of bidding wars is where, you know, we're just getting so much interest Um, And that one business I talked about, we had 12 LOIs, you know, and they were all active, not signed LOIs, but they, the sellers, the buyers were improving their LOIs to try to get the deal done. So it's
0: not really over shopping. No. Um, Because you know who the buyer, potential buyers are. So for you, it's a strategic introduction.
1: Yeah. It's a strategic introduction. It's, it's to see if it's a good strategic fit I know what the private equity groups are looking for, you know. We know what the strategists are looking for. We know what the competitors are looking for. I mean, the private equity groups are beating down our door every day, sending us emails saying, "Do you have anything in this space? Do you have anything in that space?" You know. So it really isn't over shopping. I mean, I, I can see it as over shopping, like where, you know the industry that you come from, from where you're trying to raise capital,
0: <laughs> right?
1: But not when it comes to selling businesses now.
0: Very good. There, there
1: are a lot of buyers, you know, too. I, I want to get this point across. People don't understand this. There are more buyers when you get EBITDA over a million dollars. Like, that's the sweet spot. When you get EBITDA a million, two million, three million, four million and up, there are more buyers at that level than there are buyers under a million in EBITDA. There are more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to
0: buy. Yes, absolutely. So it looks like we are wrapping up our time here. I want to, again, thank you so much, Michelle, for taking time out of your business busy schedule to be on the compassionate capitalist show. And I want to encourage folks to go to exitrich.com. You want to take just a couple of seconds to describe the bonuses that they, they get with that because I I'm waiting for my book. I'm already starting to (laughs) tap into those bonuses and, uh, it's uh, really quite amazing what you're offering as part thank of this. You. So tell our audience about that. Well, I want them to go to exitrichbook.com. Oh, gosh, I keep go rich. To- <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, and because you get to say it twice like that, book, 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 you put the book in there. But, you know, Yeah. So go you- to
1: exitrichbook.com. The book comes out in June. But if you go to exitrichbook.com and order the book today for $24.79, which is less than Amazon, We will email you the digital download today so you can start reading it immediately. You don't have to wait till June. Plus we will ship the hardcover to your doorstep when the book launches to anyone that lives inside the United States. And we will give you a lifetime membership into the Exit Rich Book Club, where there's video content of me doing deep dives and different techniques, strategies I've been practicing over the last 20 years, plus documents. Documents to run your business, documents to sell your business. Wow. So we have sample employee handbooks, non-competes, org charts, sample letter of intents, purchase agreements, due diligence checklist, and closing docs. If you went to your attorney to recreate all this, it would cost you over $30,000.
0: Definitely. And these
1: are there for your review and your download. You can download these these um, all these documents and start using them. Plus, we give you a 30-day free membership into Club CEOs, which is an entrepreneur, mastermind that I started, where we do Q&As and hot seats to help those business owners really ask those transformational questions so you can get unstuck and really build that sustainable,
0: scalable, when you're ready, sellable
1: business. All for $24.79 at
0: exitrichbook.com. Yeah, exit rich book. I think it's good the background i keep seeing that i have a subliminal i left the book off there but it is exitrichbook.com and of course the the main the other her main website that talks about all the services and all the other content and educational materials that you have is at sealertucker.com, which is s-e-i-l-e-i-t-u-c-k-e-r.com for those that are listening s-e-i-l-e-r did, it, did I not say that? I'm looking at it and I didn't even say that. S E I L E R T U C K E R dot com. Okay. Thanks, Karen, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate you being on, onwards and upwards. And please, everybody, go to KarenRance.co. And uh, if you are listening to this on one platform, then please, uh, uh, you know, tell it, share it, share this out to all your friends that own their own businesses, and uh, onwards and upwards. Thank you very much.